Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Kunzman, and on today's episode of the New Books Network, we'll be talking with Mary Jane Rubenstein about her new book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2022. Mary Jane is the Professor of Religion and Science in Society at Wesleyan University. She has also co-authored books such as Image, Three Inquiries in Imagination and Technology, also by the University of Chicago Press. Also, Pantheologies, Gods, Worlds, and Monsters. I hope you enjoy the interview for today. So, Mary Jane, we usually like to start our interviews by asking our authors just about their general background and how they came to write their current work. So how did you come to write uh, Astrotopia? Sure. Um, great question. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, so my uh, my field of uh, focus has been in uh, the study of religion and the study of philosophy. And over the last decade or so, I've become um, interested, excited about the places where religion and philosophy um sort of collide uh, with the natural sciences. Um, And it may actually be better to say that in the other direction, where the natural sciences tumble into uh, religion and philosophy. Uh, And I guess, you you know, at this point, you can't really avoid uh, these big space barons, the people, Christian Davenport, he's a reporter, um, called the space barons. So Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, um, we hear about them almost every day and what they're up to in outer space. And the more that I heard about them, the more I realized they were sounding a lot like really traditional, old-fashioned prophets talking about new worlds and um, better places that we might live better lives, um, telling us stories about uh, how awful things were in the world that we live in and how much better things might be elsewhere. Uh, so they just started sounding like things that I'm familiar with, which is to say uh, religion, religious uh charismatic figures um, who are, are offering us these stories of disaster and salvation. So it was it was basically just ordinary exposure to the, the, the normal news cycle. So in the book, you introduce a, a phrase called the Canaan complex. And I, I, I'm pretty sure you map it onto these new space barons as uh, you call them. Uh, what is the Canaan complex, and how do how does it translate to these new uh, figures that want to explore space? Sure. So um, Canaan is the promised land in the Hebrew Bible, the the land that God promises to Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. And the idea is that if Abraham and his descendants keep the covenant with God, then God will deliver them into a land that will be their own. And he says, you know, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Um, this will be a land where your, you know, your generations can thrive forever. 
the uh, the problem, as we we learn from the books of Genesis and Exodus, um, is that Canaan, the land of Canaan, this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, where the people can finally be free, is already occupied by other people. And so, a number of times when um, the scripture refers to the land of Canaan, they will also mention that it is the land of the Canaanites, people who already live there, um, the land of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the, um, and there are a whole number of people already living there. And as the book of Exodus wears on and um, as the book of Joshua takes over, uh, the um, the prophets, the people to whom God communicates, are increasingly told, and you know, when you get to the land of Canaan, you're going to have to deal with the people who already live there. And by deal with them, I mean exterminate them. I mean, get rid of them. I mean, destroy them completely, because if you don't destroy them completely, they might turn you into idolaters. So at least the idea is that when the promised land is delivered to the chosen people. The chosen people are going to have to get rid of absolutely everybody else, in particular the indigenous folks, who al- which is to say the people who already live there, who are indigenous to that land. So what I mean by the Canaan complex is um, this, uh, this fallacious belief that there is somehow a new um, untainted land that a particular people deserve um, and that they have the right to take, to exploit, um, and perhaps to uh, take from even perhaps from people who already live there. Um, This is the story that certainly underwrote the exploration and the conquest of uh, the so-called New World of the Americas. the Americas were understood to be uh, God's new Israel, our sort of second round Canaan. Uh, and there are early preachers in the 15th and 16th century who would say that um, indigenous Americans were actually Canaanites. And so just as God had given the Israelites license to destroy the Canaanites, God was also giving uh, Europeans license to enslave and destroy uh, indigenous American communities. Um, now, it seems on the one hand, like... <laughs> Outer space has nothing to do with this because as far as we know, there's nobody on Mars. There's nobody on the moon. There aren't people in any of the places. There aren't, you know, uh, humanoids or even animals uh, living on asteroids. Uh, There don't seem to be living beings on the lands that uh, the, the, the sort of current space race is hoping to land on and exploit. On the other hand, um, I, I think that the same, promise is is operational here, which is to say um, you are entitled to land, to a new land, to a land that you can take and make use of uh, as um, sort of energetically and unrelentingly as you would like to because you are somehow divinely, um, again, divinely entitled to this land. I guess the question is um, the, these new space these new space uh, barons. Uh, usually, they're not traditionally religious. So, how do they implicitly inherit this Canaan complex? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, I got I've got there are a couple ways to answer this question. Um, one way is that um, I've got a, a, a teacher um, from um, you know long ago 
who is uh, famous for saying that religion is most interesting where it's least obvious, that uh, religion t- tends to show up in all sorts of places, um, sometimes even especially uh, where um, the actors don't think they're behaving religiously or even think that they're behaving unreligiously. Um, take the French Revolution, for example, which was um, enacted on seemingly totally secular principles, um, but which arguably replaced religion with a whole new set of um, beliefs and rituals just organized around the nation state rather than uh, around a transcendent God. Um, So this isn't the only place where religion shows up where it seems to be um, dismissed out of hand. You're absolutely right that um, these uh, men, for the most part, who are seeking to colonize the universe do not think of themselves as religious. They don't, they don't say that they're religious. Um, They don't have any, they don't have any seeming commitment to any of the you know usual um, traditions or denominations out there, and that's totally fine. Um, but what's happening instead is that, as you're saying, they've inherited these uh, these religious tendencies. Um, one of them, as I mentioned before, is the tendency of the the sort of messianic figure, right, the, the sort of self-appointed Messiah, um, to sell a scenario of impending doom on the one hand and salvation elsewhere on the other. Um, and another one, they've, they've inherited a bunch of them. Um, another is this idea of a sort of chosen people and a promised land somewhere else that, again, courses through uh, the Hebrew Bible in particular. Um, how did they get it? Well, you know, the, the these stories um, that come to us from the Hebrew Bible that get sort of transmuted into the New Testament um, and then uh, globalized by means of uh, missionary uh, Christianity teamed up with uh imperial politics, first with um, Rome um, and next with imperial uh, Europe in the early modern and modern period. Um, Christianity basically gets, it, it takes over the good, a good part of the globe. And as Christianity becomes a tool of imperialism, it basically goes underground, right? Even if you're not a Christian, you're inheriting these Christian principles by, by virtue of your participating in nation states that have um, allied themselves with imperial Christianity in order to, um, to establish themselves. So there's all sorts of sort of unconsciously Christian principles. And again, um, the, these unconsciously Christian principles inherit some unconsciously Jewish principles um, that, are, that course through our political sphere that course through the natural sciences, that course through um, all of these areas, our economy, um, all of these areas that think that they have absolutely nothing to do with religion. And throughout the book, you sort of spell out all the damage that's being done by this tendency. What sort of damage is being done? So clearly, um, the damage that's been done terrestrially on Earth um, by this promise of um, infinite uh, profit and uh, and the the priority of chosen people um, and the promise of uh, a land that is totally theirs that they can take um, the damage that's been done on earth includes um, the decimation of indigenous peoples um, the dislocation of so many of them um, putting them into a position where they have to reconstitute themselves in different places um, the enslavement of um, in particular African descended people um, because in order to get 
maximum profit out of a, a, a seemingly dead earth, um, you need an exploitable labor force. So um, in the enslavement of certain people, um, the um, exploitation of other kinds of laborers in you know terrible working conditions um, and of course the decimation of the earth of the land itself the exhaustion of its uh, the things that we call resources um, the loss of biodiversity um, all of these uh, social and political and ecological disasters can be traced to this imperial complex, this notion that um, the earth is somehow there for a particular subset of humanity um, to use as they see fit, um, and that that they are somehow um, divinely uh, licensed to do so. And then this will later get transferred over into space. So we are taking our values right. and decimating and dominating space. And uh, how? What are the scriptural uh, authority in something like Genesis and the creation story? Like, how does this uh, maybe dictate how uh, we view space? Well, okay, so it's not clear that it's actually in Genesis, um, but it's certainly in dominant interpretations of Genesis. Um, the, the very opening lines of the first book of Genesis are, uh, in the beginning, when God was creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Um, the way that that has uh traditionally been translated is, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. And the earth was formless and void and without it. And um, the problem with that particular translation is that it reflects centuries of the church insisting that God creates the universe out of absolutely nothing. This idea of creation out of nothing is um, is Orthodox Christian teaching. Um, it has become Orthodox Muslim teaching. Um, in some circles, it is Orthodox Jewish teaching, but there's some, um, there's some dispute about this. So this idea of creation out of nothing, um, many biblical scholars would say, is not actually scriptural. It's a sort of weird misreading of scripture, but it becomes the dominant understanding of the way that God goes about the work of creation. Um, as we know from a number of religious studies scholars, people make their gods uh, in the image of themselves. People um, worship gods who look just like them. So one of the things that this means is if you have an understanding of the way that your God creates, that reflects the highest values of your community. Um, part of the reason that the idea of creation out of nothing is so um, enthralling to imperial Christianity is that they want to create out of nothing too, right? They want the promise of a, a blank slate where the empire can go in and just make things anew so that it can gather resources and, and capital for, for the empire. So people um, under the sway of this myth, this myth of creation out of nothing, themselves um, pretend that they are creating out of nothing. This, this notion of creation out of nothing, again, which has sort of funky uh, scriptural basis, um, becomes the, um, the uh, 
justification for the doctrine and in fact the blueprint for the doctrine of uh, terra nullius, which is to say uh, no man's land or no one's land or empty land in the age of exploration. The idea there is uh, if there's nothing on the land, if there's no one on the land, it belongs to whatever European nation um, happens to find it. And of course, there's never nothing on the land and there's never no one on the land. Um, earthly, you know, terrestrially speaking. It's just that Europe would convince itself, would do these sort of uh, political backflips and theological backflips to convince itself that the land that they had found was somehow empty. And if the land that you find is empty, you're allowed to do anything that you want to it. Um, This same idea is what is undergirding um, the sort of giddy excitement with which some of the space barons are looking at places like the moon and Mars and saying like, look, there's nothing there. And because there's nothing there, we can do anything we want to it. Elon Musk says, look, Mars is a little cold. If we want to live on it, we're going to have to heat it up. So why don't we send nuclear warheads there and nuke the ice caps, the polar ice caps? Let's just nuke Mars with upwards of 10 thousand nuclear warheads like that's a good idea because it's going to make mars warmer and we'll be and we're able to do these things we're licensed to do these things because there's nothing on it but there isn't nothing on mars there are all sorts of formations on mars there are um there are geological formations on Mars. There's a history on Mars that we're just beginning to understand uh, that we will demolish entirely if we decide uh, to nuke it. The same idea uh, holds when it comes to the moon, right? The moon is understood to be just sort of dead, dusty nothingness. Um, and this is the reason that it will be all right eventually to uh, mine all of the, to, to extract all of the water from the moon, um, to build bases there. Um, and again, the justification is, look, there's nothing there. So we're entitled to do whatever we want to it. Um, but of course, um, first, again, there is something there. The moon has a history. Um, and that is also a history that we are just starting to learn. And really, the the design behind this idea of exploiting the moon within an inch of its life, some of the uh, new space CEOs talk about turning the moon into a cosmic gas station. Um, the, the, the reason we really want to do this is that we want to have the, the sort of optimal military position so that we can nuke, we, the U.S. Um, and its allies, uh, can can um, target Russia or China or any of its enemies um, from a sort of God's eye view on on the moon. Um, so this is it's it's a it's a conceit, this idea of, you know, the nothingness that we're able to do anything that we want to. Um, and it always hides some kind of um, sinister um uh, intention, usually military and economic. Throughout the second half of the book, you talk about possible ways in which to imagine new futures in space and uh, able to perform scientific investigation more ethically. Uh, what are some of those proposals? Great. So there are a few. Um, the ones that I tend to talk about in the book are, so I, what I want to make clear is that I, I wouldn't spend so much time writing a book about space if I didn't think space was really cool. I think space is fantastic. We have so much to learn from it. Um, and the thing that I think is so compelling about outer space um, is precisely this possibility that we could do things differently, that we could live in other ways, that we could... Um, we could do things otherwise. Um, and I think what's so 
distressing to me about the way that the corporate space race is underway is that there's nothing new in this vision at all. It's just the same old vision. It's the same vision that has destroyed this planet um, seeking to uh, take itself cosmic, to take itself elsewhere. And I think, like, why would we want to do this again to other planetary bodies? Um, couldn't we instead um, think along with the, the the great sort of historic imaginers of outer space to think about other ways to be. So um, in the book, I, I look at um, the writing of speculative fiction and science fiction authors, um, particularly folks from marginalized communities, you know, feminist sci-fi authors and um, black and indigenous sci-fi and speculative fiction authors um, who, by virtue of their being on the sort of underside of this story of Western dominance, um, have ideas about other ways we could be, other ways, you know, ways to set up a city um, in, in, in the imagination of N.K. Jemison, for example. Um, a city built on the principle of um, caring for one another, right? You can just sort of start from scratch and think about how we would build a city where people care for one another. Um, those sorts of imaginings um, are most readily available in the work of again, speculative fiction and science fiction authors. So I think we can look there and we can also look to what's known as uh, traditional ecological knowledge, which is to say the knowledge of indigenous folks who have managed to live on their lands, with their lands, as their lands even, um, without destroying it. And in fact, in ways where the life of the community actually enriches the life of the land, just as the life of the land enriches the life of the community. Um, So there are other people all over the place who know how to live differently. Um, even uh, Pope Francis, the current um, head of the Roman Catholic Church, is absolutely certain that the way that we're living on the earth right now is not only unsustainable, but um, demonic even <laughs> needs to be done differently. Um, so there are religious folks, there are uh, indigenous folks, there are literary figures um, who have uh, who have plenty of good ideas about how we can live otherwise. And I think that we can listen to them. Um, Recently, I've been in touch with some folks in the new space world themselves um, who have other ideas of going about things. Um, there's a there's a company called Titan Space, um, and their idea is that in order to learn from outer space without exploiting it, what we should do is rather than bringing ourselves and all of our disastrous mechanisms out there, um, we can bring it here. So they're looking to form virtual platforms that allow human beings to explore outer space and to figure out how compounds would work out there, how experiments would work out there, um, all through you know simulated and virtual experiences. There are tons of ways to learn from outer space without destroying it. There are tons of ways to live on the land without exploiting it. Um, we just need to, 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 to listen to those ways ways and to be willing to do things differently. At the um, end of the book, you want to pose a counter theological view from monotheism to pantheism. How would thinking pantheistically completely change our view of outer space, the environs, and just the physical world in general? 
Right. So again, I, I think pantheism is another one of these, um, you know, possible resources we can consult if we want to think about um, valuing our world differently. Um, so while we're at it, listening to, you know, different kinds of entrepreneurs and different kinds of literary figures and different kinds of um uh, communities on the earth. We, you know, we could also listen and, and, you know, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, we could also think about pantheism, which I think is, is, is at least a helpful thought experiment. Um, the idea, pantheism is, is actually a very straightforward idea. The idea is that the universe itself is divine. That that's what, what what we mean by God when we use the word God is not a uh, single humanoid character outside the universe, but rather the universe itself. Um, and I think that uh, the pantheist possibility, again, I, I'm not saying that anybody needs to be a pantheist or we all need to convert to pantheism or anything, um, but just to sort of think pantheistically, can I think be helpful? Um, because it corrects some of the major trappings of monotheism as we have traditionally received it in the imperial West. And these are um, one, the idea that what is divine is not of this world, right? That God is outside the universe. God is elsewhere. Um, what this means fundamentally is that this world, this universe is not God, is not itself sacred, is maybe sacred insofar as it's connected to that God, but it's not, it doesn't itself have divine worth. That's, this is one issue. Another issue with the monotheistic tradition as we've received it is that because this God is, uh, again, sort of humanoid in intelligence, this God is said to prefer human beings over everybody else. So the uh, human exploitation of the, 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 the earth and eventually the cosmos is endorsed by this God because God says, you are in my image and nobody else is in my image, right? Human beings are better than everybody else. Um, there are some other problems, including the emptiness of the, right? The, the, the inanimacy of the land, for example. Um, pantheist traditions would teach that um, humans are no more God or godly than trees or rocks or rivers or um, newts or chameleons. <laughs> that um, Everything that is from animals to vegetables to minerals to um, humans to whoever else is out, mushrooms, um, that everything that is participates in the ongoing life of the universe. And insofar as everything that is participates in the ongoing life of the universe, everything that is participates in the ongoing life of divinity, of God, um, which is to say everything has a part to play in this sort of God function of the universe. What is the God function of the universe? Well, it's the, 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 the creation of all things, the maintenance of all things, the destruction of all things, the recycling of all things. These are the sort of God functions of, um, of the universe itself. And all of us play um, some kind of role in that ongoing process of creation and maintenance and destruction and recreation. Uh, so it seems to me that, again, whether or not you believe that the universe is God or anything like that, um, taking just taking a little while to think about what it would mean to affirm that tree outside your window as sharing in divinity right? um, would 
allow you to think, well, oh, actually, <laughs> right, if I thought about that tree as sharing in divinity, it might um, give me pause before cutting it down just because it's giving me too much shade or because it's dropping too much fruit on my driveway or something like that. Which isn't to say you could never cut a tree down, um, but you'd need to make sure that other um that there 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 were there were reasons so compelling um that that uh there, there were reasons that were compelling enough to extinguish that kind of life that the tree is a life the tree is a sacred kind of life um i think it would help if we thought about uh the moon and mars uh, the way that on the one hand we already think about the moon and the mars which and mars which is to say as divinity right the, mars is named after a god we already have this idea sort of baked into our heritage all of the planets are named after gods we have the the, the idea that there's something sort of divine about these planetary bodies. Um, and this isn't just an old inheritance. The, the most uh, contemporary mission that is aiming to exploit the moon and then set us on a path to Mars is called Artemis, after a Greek goddess, after the Greek goddess of the moon. Um, so on the one hand, we, we do actually think that there's something kind of divine about these bodies. On the other hand, we don't treat them that way. So the pantheist possibility would be... Um, a, a, a kind of thought experiment um, to, to think about if we really took seriously that there's something divine about the moon, um, would we use it as a gas station and a military base? If we would, all right, fine. But at least there's a sort of slowing down that uh, might encourage us to think differently about our obligations to these, uh, these, these planetary bodies. So on a more practical level, if there's, how would a citizen who is interested in thinking about space in a more inclusive um, way, how would they, are there any organizations, how would they try to make their voice heard? Um, yeah, so there is one group called the Just Space Alliance, which is mainly um, astronomers and physicists um, trying to think about ways to uh, get through to uh, NASA in particular, um, to take planetary protection protocols more seriously. Um, so um, hooking into the work of the Just Space Alliance would be fantastic. Um, NASA does have uh, occasional community meetings where they, uh, they look to inform the community of what they're up to. Um, and I think that it would be helpful in any of those um, arenas to encourage anybody who will listen at NASA um, to try to do as much of their work as possible uh, independently from the sort of profiteering end of the private sector. The private sector has always helped NASA out. Boeing, um, Lockheed Martin, et cetera, um, have you know, made the rockets that have made the NASA missions possible. But we're, what we're increasingly getting um, is uh, private actors who are chiefly interested not only in making a profit from their contract with NASA, but making a profit from what they can exploit from outer space. Um, and as the, the, the balance shifts from you know, discovery and understanding on the one hand to uh, profit and profiteering on the other hand, um, I think any way that we can find to encourage our uh, our legislature, our leg legislators to dial back a little bit um, the, the room that they've given to 
private actors uh, would be would be fantastic. So we can, I mean, there right, we can we can follow the legislation, we can follow uh, NASA's priorities, and we can intervene in any of those places. So before 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 we go, um, we usually like to ask our uh, guests: Is there any uh, future writing project that they have? So are you working any on anything new? So at the moment, I'm working on. Um, I'm working on a series of webinars in the spring that are going to bring together um, uh, that are going to bring together uh, folks who work at NASA and um, some private interest folks and uh, some uh, theologians and historians and religious authorities uh, to think about what our obligations to outer space are. So I'm digging a little farther into this project to think about religion in outer space, um, not just so, so that so that the focus shifts a little bit from you know the damage that religious language can do um, to this and other planets um, to the assistance that religious discourse can provide us when we're looking for other ways um, other ways to go. So I'm I'm I'll be I'll be uh, doing this sort of online work about religion and space exploration in the spring. Um, and, uh, and then after that, I think I'm actually going to be, uh, veering a little bit, um, into the category of, uh, pseudoscience. I'm, I'm looking to figure out where that category came from, what we, what we call pseudoscience, what, why we distinguish science from pseudoscience under what conditions, um, under what conditions does something, uh, get relegated to that category of pseudoscience and, and how can it sometimes be delivered from it. Um, I think that that's where it's going to be a slightly more academic project than this one, but I think that's where I'm headed next. Mary Jane, thank you. Thank you so much for the interview. Of course. Thanks so much, David.